Okay, here we are, right now, with part three on our discussions on 1984, the novel by George Orwell. I hope you've been following along, I hope you've enjoyed all the things that we've discovered in the first two parts to this mini-series. It's been quite a plot to go through. And we've seen a lot of things happen, both on the exterior world and the interior world of our protagonist, Winston Smith. And this whole question of the individual and how they relate to their environment really is a vast question. It's a very vast infinity of awareness to walk into. Winston has his culture, he has the people that he interacts with, and he's a part of this brutal, oppressive dictatorship, which feeds him propaganda, and has constant surveillance on him, and he's really in this world of oppression, sometimes in obvious ways. And most of the time, really, in subtle ways. And this is the journey that he has been on. His journey back to finding his inner light. His journey of finding something to contrast with the culture that he's in. And of course, he did start to find things. Some things were very simple, like the pleasures of Fresh coffee, the pleasures of real sugar, the giving up of a drinking habit. And on a deeper level, he found this relationship with Julia, this intimate relationship, this love affair. And this really is a glorious, rebellious act in the face of oppression from a higher power. And there are so many ways in which the environment affects the individual. It's the information that individuals are being fed. It's the conditioning of their friends, their co-workers, their colleagues. It's the images that are surrounding them. It's the political climate. It's the political structure. It's their diet. It's their health. It's their general well-being. It's their daily habits. It's the kind of resources that are available to them. It's the kind of riches or poverty that they have. And the society we live in is more complex. It's changing faster. There are more strings, and there are more ways in which we can be 
influenced, changed, manipulated than there was in the imagination of a 1949 George Orwell, which was when this book was written. His imagination of the future. And right at the end of part two, Winston had just been in the middle of this realization, which was a realization of beauty. And he was looking out the window, having some quiet time in his little hideaway with Julia, and just looking and seeing an old fat lady do her washing. And he could recognize the beauty in that lady, the beauty also more broadly just of the moment, just the beauty of things being, things existing. And sadly, even after just a few moments of that realization, of savoring the beauty, he remembered that he is oppressed. He is in this society that he's powerless to escape from and that his time will be up. And just at that critical moment, the thought police busted down his door and arrested him and Julia. And it was at that point that we knew it's all over for Winston. There was no way out of it. It was clear they had information on him. It was clear that he'd broken every law in the book. And he'd known that this day was coming. He'd known the sorts of things that this regime does. And now it's happening to him. Now the nightmare has come true. Now the things that he's feared, the things that he's worried about, and the full retaliation of his rebellion, the full punishment of his rebellion is coming to be realized. All these things are coming to be realized. So part three begins with Winston waking up in a jail cell. And from there is a long, drawn-out process that he goes through in relation to the establishment and his own inner workings. And in this prison cell, and along this process, it's not just subtle influences. It's not just a contrived environment that he is in. It's an active pulling of the strings. It's a condensed, intensified, experiential process tailored for him, the individual, personally tailored to him and his beliefs, and his ideas, and his situations, and his character. 
And the first thing we notice is that when he wakes up in this prison cell, he doesn't know what day it is. He doesn't know what time it is. And he doesn't know if it's light, nighttime or daytime because the light is on and there are no windows. And he'd been knocked out from the arrest and he'd been quite tired anyway. And this is one of the main strings. This is one of the key things that you do to a person when you're putting them into an intensified experiential process. And that is to disorientate them by time. So you take away their sense of time, their sense of where the day is. And in this prison cell, well, he can't tell. And of course, another thing, another big component to disorientating someone is to take away their sense of place. And he doesn't know how he got to where he is. He doesn't know where the prison cell is. He imagines it's somewhere in the ministry, in one of the main buildings somewhere, but he can't tell if it's above ground or below ground or to the side or wherever. He has no idea of where he would have to go to escape or get out. And he's in this cell and there's other prisoners there and there's a telly screen there. And if he tries to move, well... The telly screen yells at him. And not only this, he also hasn't been fed. So he's hungry, he's disorientated, he doesn't know what time it is, he doesn't know where he is. He really is completely hopeless. Completely helpless, I should say. And there's a long passage of the other sorts of prisoners that he encounters one lady comes in and she's drunk she's a bit of a bit of a buffoon and she pukes all over the floor and she's stumbling around the place being a public nuisance and she sits next to Winston puts her arm around her and says hi darling something like this and then there's a very funny comment which is something like oh I could be your mother well, it's not really funny. It's a bit sad, really. And he, realize, he realizes she could be. She could be. She really could be. And that's another disorientating factor. Not knowing your family. Not knowing who you're relating to. Not knowing the people around you. Another man comes in and he looks very sick. He looks like he's almost dying. And Winston figures out, well, actually, he's very underfed. He's actually dying of starvation. And one of the other fellow prisoners, who's quite fat, has some food in his pocket, and he goes across to give it to this starving man. And the guards come in and hit him and say, don't do that, no interaction, no moving. Another man comes in, who Winston actually knew. It was one of his work colleagues. And yet somehow they don't really talk much. There's no real, oh, hi. Oh, acknowledging I know you. Oh, 
They got you too. What are you in for? There's not really any of that. Because this man is so caught up in his worry. And it turns out that his child had dobbed him into the thought police. And as we read it, of course, we think, why should you be arrested for this? He'd done something like talking in his sleep. And his child had overheard it. And it was sort of one of those things where on the outside, for us to read it, we think that's not evidence. That doesn't count as a guilty charge. And yet this man is in prison and he's sort of taking it like, he almost says like, wow, aren't my kids great for betraying me to the state? He was so conditioned to believe in the cause of the state that he would have himself convicted as guilty rather than to question whether that process was actually wrong, whether that evidence was actually insufficient. And there are beatings, and the guards come and go, and other prisoners come and go, and the days wear on, and Winston gets moved from one cell to another, and he's sort of just kept there over time. Until after a time when he's really given up, and he's really feeling like he's going to be there for a long time, in comes a certain character. This is a critical moment. This is the critical beginning of a key relationship. Well, a key interaction between Winston and this other significant character. And this is the moment when in walks O'Brien. O'Brien, what are you doing here? This was the man, supposedly, that gave Winston the book about the Brotherhood. This was the man that supposedly inducted Winston into the Brotherhood, into the Rebellion. This was the man that had a look in his eyes that Winston could trust. This was the man that Winston really had a hope in thought he could confide in. And it's not exactly clear right away whether Winston is here, uh, whether O'Brien is there to help him or not, and what O'Brien's history is. Because there's a little comment about Winston saying, are you working for these people? And O'Brien sort of says, Well, they got me a long time ago. Almost as if to say that O'Brien was being oppressed by a higher power. And these sessions begin, which are talks between Winston and O'Brien. Sort of like counselling sessions. And it turns out that many of these sessions involve beatings from the guards. And it goes on for some time, and it even gets to the point where Winston gets strapped in to a torture chamber. And it's a horrific device 
like being electrocuted. And he's strapped in, stuck to his chair, cannot move, talking to O'Brien. And O'Brien has this lever, this little knob, which goes to different levels from zero to a hundred. And the higher the level, the more pain there is for Winston. And they're sitting there talking. And they're saying certain things about what do you believe? What is your view? And there are very intense passages where Winston is confessing to his wrongs. Winston is giving up people. He's implicating people. And he's brought to a complete state of hopelessness because of the pain. And even in that point, it's not clear whether O'Brien is helping Winston or not. Because O'Brien keeps on taking this role of the teacher. Winston, I'm here to help you. Winston, you're thinking incorrectly. Winston, you're going insane. And Winston keeps doubting himself and he keeps getting confused. And it's not so simple as to say, well, if I just give the right answer, I won't be hurt, I won't be tortured. If I just give the right answer, he'll stop hurting me. The pain will end. If I just say that I believe, then that will be enough. No, it's not like that. It's intense psychological work. And by all means, O'Brien is more smart than Winston. Because everything that Winston brings up with him, every point of truth, every point of belief, every point of how things should be, every emotional reaction, everything he tries to conceal, every, con- every point he tries to concede, O'Brien already knows how to deal with. And as these sessions go on, all sorts of parts within Winston become dissolved and broken. His desire, his hold on hope, his sense of right and wrong, which was already upside down. And there's a critical point where Winston asks... Who wrote this book, which is the book for the Brotherhood? And O'Brien says, I wrote it in collaboration with other people. So as it turns out, this whole thing of having a rebellion or having an underworld or a secret society that doesn't agree with the overarching dictatorship, it was all really a hoax. It was already it was already something that the dictatorship was ten steps ahead of. And O'Brien starts offering explanations of why the culture is the way it is. And they have historical references. 
He talks about the witch hunts. He talks about Nazi Germany. He talks about the purges under Stalinism. And he goes on and on, saying certain things about what it means for an overarching power to oppress an individual. And it's not a matter of convincing Winston. It's not a matter of even anything that we can make tangible. It's a very disorientating process. It's a psychological warfare. It's a psychological wearing down. And Winston even gets to the point where he questions his own sanity. And deeper and deeper they go. The sessions go on. And there even comes a point where Winston starts to trust O'Brien. And there is points at critical times in the conversations when O'Brien would administer certain drugs which would relieve him of the pain. And there's also another critical point when they're really getting deep and asking themselves what is freedom and what does it mean to be a human when O'Brien tells Winston to go and take a look in the mirror and they'd set up these mirrors in their therapy room and of course by this stage Winston's been in there for months and he's told to strip down and walk over there and take a look at these mirrors and they're set up so that he can see himself in all different angles. And of course he hasn't seen himself for months because he's been in this prison. And when he looks, he sees someone totally defeated. His body has lost a lot of weight, his skin has bruises... His eyes are sunken, he's malnutrition, he's tired, he's fatigued. Even his legs have become so skinny that his knees are more wide than his legs. And this is just another moment where Winston is totally broken. Winston has totally been torn down physically. And O'Brien says that this is your humanity. This is what it means to be free. There's also another critical moment where O'Brien plays back a recording that was made when O'Brien and Winston first met. And you remember that when they first met, O'Brien was asking him questions about How far are you willing to go for the brotherhood? How dedicated are you to the cause of the rebellion? Would you take the lives of innocent people? Would you throw sulfuric acid on the face of children? Would you give your life for the cause? And these sorts of horrible things. And of course, this was at a point when Winston's morality was still... it's still upside down, inside out, and he doesn't know what is the right and wrong thing to do. His moral compass 
has gone haywire because of his cultural conditioning and the society that he's been living in all these years. And he's saying, yes, I will do the right thing. Yes, I will follow. Yes, I am dedicated to the cause. And here this recording is being played back to him. And he's starting to see now, look at your moral standing. Look at your moral compass. And you call the dictator immoral. You call yourself a human. You call yourself free. And it goes on. Because Winston gets to the point where he realizes there's no way out. And he's endured all the pain he can stand. And he's been broken over and over again. And there's nothing left for him. He's even on the verge of insanity. He's even on the verge of losing touch with what's real and what's not. And there is this messed up relationship between him and O'Brien. And O'Brien keeps having sessions with him. Keeps talking to him in the teacher voice. Talking to him as in the I'm going to help you tone of voice. And even after that, he comes to the realization that he hates Big Brother. And this is the last stand. This is the last shred of inner truth that Winston has. If they can take everything away from him, but he can just hold on to this one fact that he hates Big Brother, and he can remain himself, he can remain with at least a slither of freedom. And on a critical session, O'Brien walks in and asks him, Winston, I'm going to ask you something, and do not lie, because I will know the truth. I will know if you're lying. And this is actually another component of their relationship, is that O'Brien starts to read the mind of Winston. O'Brien starts to say things that Winston is thinking or has been thinking. And he knows this because of the process. He knows this because of their relationship. And so he asks him, tell me honestly, and I will know if you lie, how do you feel about Big Brother? And Winston says, I hate him. And with those words, O'Brien was able to focus in on the last shred of freedom of the inner world of Winston. And so they cart him off to a special torture chamber. And this is known as Room 101. And there's a lot of symbolism in the room, in the, in the number 101, and we also see this in the, the Matrix movie. Neo actually lives in the Room 101. And it's a micro-expression of the hero's journey, which is you start as one, and then you die, and you become zero, and then you become one again. 
And also a sub-variation of that is room 303, which is the Holy Trinity. So this reference appeared here first before it was in the Matrix, and the Matrix referred to this book, 1984. And the other side of it is, well, binary code 101 is actually the number of three, which is the Holy Trinity. And there are lots of ins and outs and references and all different ways we can talk about the symbolism of 101. But here in this torture chamber, room 101 of the Ministry of Love, in this dictatorship of Big Brother, it means that here is where you're going to be stripped down to nothing completely. And it's this last feeling, this last sense of hate that Winston has in him, which is going to be taken from him. And in this torture chamber, I don't know if I should describe it. I don't want to, I don't want to give away the ending. So let me, let me not spoil the entire story for you, but it's really, it's really the climax of the story. And basically they use the information that they had on Winston to torture his deepest fear. And I won't say that what that was. But of course, they had that information because they had the surveillance on him. And they set up this device, which is bringing his worst fear towards him. And it's going to devour him. And just at that critical moment, at that one moment when he's searching for the last way to get out of it, what he does is he says, no, don't do it to me. Do it to someone else. Do it to Julia. Sacrifice someone else instead of me. And at that moment, the torture machine is stopped. And O'Brien realizes that he's got him. He's taken his last shred of his inner light. So some time passes, and there are more sessions following up between O'Brien and Winston, and eventually Winston is actually released, and he's given a new job, and he's given a new place to live. It's actually quite an easy job for him to do. It's actually quite a nice place to live. He actually has his own servant. It's almost as if he has graduated into the inner class, the higher class. And this is also echoed in the other characters. Some of the other characters. There's one in particular which we see this in, and this is very subtle. But this is in the man that owned the shop that rented the room to Winston, the secret room. And he had actually got a new job in the Thought Police. So he'd gone from shop owner to being a member of the Thought Police. And that transition 
had involved a change in his facial features, almost like he'd got a new look about him. You know, he dyed his hair and his face had been different and his whole demeanour had changed, his whole posture and how he talked and these sorts of things. But that was like a sort of promotion for him from shopkeeper to thought police. And we wonder about O'Brien and his comment of, oh, they got me a long time ago. And where he started off. Because also, you remember that when Winston visited O'Brien, well, that was actually quite a luxurious place that O'Brien lived in. He had his own servant. It was quite a fancy apartment. They were drinking wine, not gin. These sorts of things. And there's a comment in that, because now Winston comes out, and he's been through this process, and he's, he seems to have graduated. He seems to have gone up in the ranks. And he's sitting in his favourite cafe, drinking gin, and they always undercharge him, but it doesn't matter because he always seems to have enough money anyway. And he's able to put on more weight. He's able to actually get fat. And what does that say? What's the comment there? Is it, as you go up in the ranks of society, you fall deeper into its traps? The more high class you are, the more society has its grip on you. And as Winston sits there in his favourite cafe, sipping on his gin and playing a chess problem, he's listening to the telly screen, he's listening to the news. And we're in his world. And he can't exactly think straight. But furthermore, he doesn't know that he can't think straight. And furthermore, he doesn't know what's changed between how he is now and how he was before that process. And some news comes on that there's been a victory in the war. And he gets a real thrill. He's so glad of the victory. It's a very positive thing, a very positive emotion. And he sits back for a moment and he looks at Big Brother. And it dawns on him that actually Big Brother is there to help him. Big Brother is there to look over him. And this is the moment where he realizes that he loves Big Brother. And that's where the novel ends. And at face value, well, I say it's a tragedy. Why has George Orwell done this to this character? What's he trying to say? I think that's quite obvious. It's that the people don't make it out of their culture. People don't survive these processes. And people really do have themselves conditioned 
right down to their very core, their core virtues, their deepest intuitions, no matter how subtle, can be squeezed out of them like a wet rag that's been twisted. And there is another, one more scene that I'd like to talk about before we launch off into some other ideas and sort of my own responses to this and what's come to mind for me. And this is the scene where Winston's been out for a a year or two and he actually runs into Julia. And it's a cold night and they sort of just happen by and they can both see that they've both changed. And there's no desire at all. And they go off and they decide to sit down for a little bit and talk. And let me just read a quote from this interaction. I betrayed you, she said blandly. I betrayed you, he said. She gave him another quick look of dislike. Sometimes, she said, they threaten you with something. Something you can't stand up to, can't even think about. And then you say, don't do it to me, do it to someone else. Do it to so-and-so. And perhaps you might pretend afterwards that it was only a trick and that you just said it to make them stop and didn't really mean it. But that isn't true. At the time when it happens, you do mean it. You think there's no other way of saving yourself, and you're quite ready to save yourself that way. You want it to happen to the other person. You don't give a damn what they suffer. All you care about is yourself. All you care about is yourself, he echoed. And after that, you don't feel the same towards any other per- don't feel the same towards the other person any longer. No, he said, you don't feel the same. End quote. This is very important to understand. This is very powerful. Which is that there are intensified, constructed experiences which can affect a person structurally. There are individual, one-off Situations which can change a person permanently. There are certain things which an individual can go through which will affect them for the rest of their life. And this is very important to understand. The next thing to be understood is 
the idea of condensed experiencing. And not only condensed experiencing, but depth of experiencing. Before Winston was arrested and he'd gone through this process within his imprisonment, his experiences were not so much condensed and they weren't so deep. He was in this society, in this culture, and it was rubbing off on him in subtle ways, in gradual ways, bit by bit, small bit over the time of years, and so on. After his arrest and during his imprisonment, the, the conditioning that he went through was intensified. It was condensed. It's like the cordial. If we think of the cordial concentrate, well, before his arrest, he's just drinking watered-down cordial, and that's his diet. But during his arrest, he's drinking just straight cordial with no water. It's like he's drinking hard spirits as opposed to just beer. And the depth of those intensified experiences that he went through during his imprisonment were far deeper than the things he went through before. And we get the feeling, once he's out, once he's been through that, it's so deep, it's like he's been done. He's been got. And even his surveillance has been relaxed. And he doesn't even feel like there's a problem with meeting with Julia. It's almost like the establishment can say, you know, it doesn't matter if you meet your old girlfriend and you go off and you have a talk. We've got you so deep that there's no problem. There's no chance of anything sparking between you. And of course, like so many things, there's not a single person saying this or thinking this. It's some far-off mystical entity such as the dictatorship, such as Big Brother. And this is very important to understand these things. It's very important to see them within yourself. It's very important to have your awareness flagged when you see it happening to you with your culture. And it is such that, well, most of us don't have prison time with our dictatorship countries. Most of us remain in the general life, the normal day-to-day stuff, and just being influenced subtly by our culture. We're the fish in water. We're not the concentrate-drinking people. But there is something to learn from this. There is something that I'd like to talk about, which is the flip side of this narrative. And it's really the things I think about when I hear this sort of narrative.
The number one thing to be understood is that your culture is bad for you. And there is something very powerful in quite simply not participating. And this might sound drastic. It might sound rebellious. It might sound impossible. But it can be done rather simply and rather easily. And this is one of the key things I want you to take from this series, from this novel, which is that you don't have to participate. And it doesn't mean rebelling in the way that Julia and Winston did. It quite simply means turning off the things that are influencing you. And the most powerful way of doing that is quite simply to sit down on a cushion, close your eyes, and do nothing. Turn inwards. Listen to your inner light. In other words, meditate. There is nothing more rebellious than meditating. And there's nothing more powerful as an act to unplug yourself from the system than meditating. And it really is as simple as just stopping. Turn off your media. Turn off your internet. Turn off the things that give you information. And even have some time alone away from your friends and your family. Because that's part of it. They're part of your culture. And the whole idea of turning in and finding your own inner light through the path of meditation is a timeless piece of wisdom. It applies to whatever culture you were in. And it doesn't matter whether you're in a dictatorship or a democracy, whether you lived in the Stalinist period or the Nazi period, or whether you're alive today and you have all these technological devices we all have to go through the process of realizing the water that we're swimming in. We all are fish in the water and everyone, no matter what their culture, no matter what continent they're on, no matter what class they're in, no matter what parents they had, no matter what education they had, Everyone has to go through the path of finding out what's wrong with their culture, of contrasting their culture to something else. And it's not to say they're all bad things. It's not to say that culture should be driven away. And I don't mean to say that we should turn in and all become monks and only meditate. No. 
With awareness, we can see what is to be celebrated by culture. And of course, in the case of this novel, 1984, well, we can't see much to celebrate. The things that are celebrated in this Orwellian society that Winston is in, in this dystopia, well, the idea of celebration is turned on its head. They're celebrating hate week. And I'm saying that the comment there is not just that if something is bad, you should know that it's bad, which is true, but rather you should know that there is something deeper to how you see things which cannot be told to you by the things themselves. The only way out is to contrast more. And take for instance, take for instance just the education system, just the educational conditioning. You need to realize that the information you receive through the education system is not enough. Even if you go all the way through and you get a PhD. You do primary school, you do middle school, you do high school, you do college. You do your bachelor or your major and your postgrad. You do your masters. You do your PhD. And you get high distinctions the whole way through. Even that is not enough. You might say, well, Dosta, does that mean I have to work more than these people that do PhDs? Are you telling me the only way out of my educational conditioning is to basically be smarter than someone who has a PhD? And the answer is no, not exactly. The answer is to have a broader intelligence. The answer is to have multiple forms of intelligence. People with PhDs who jump through the hoops of the academia system have only a narrow form of intelligence. And we're very lucky that now there is a way to develop your multiple forms of intelligence. Because you can listen to teachers online, on the internet, which are aware of these things. And you can go out and find people that can show you the way. The information is available. But it's going to take some seeking. It's going to take some searching. It's going to take some digging. And it's a long process. There's no bulletproof, quick-fix solution. It's a process. It's a journey. And every single human being starts at square one. Every single human being has to go through all the milestones, all the chapters. They all have to go on their own hero's journey. Now, some people are very blessed and they have a lot of support. Those people are very few. And in a sense, if you are listening to me in this very conversation right here, then you are blessed. You are very lucky. There are not many people 
who can take a positive message from this book, 1984. And there are not many people that can teach in a multidimensional way with broad forms of intelligence, with deep aspects of culture and point out certain things that you should contrast and learn for yourself. And you do have to rely on teachers. You do have to listen to people. You do have to be attentive. You do need to put your pride aside and take some advice sometimes. But you also need to learn for yourself. You need to think for yourself. And that's a paradox that will come up again and again on your journey. That's a contradiction that you'll have to resolve again and again. Am I a follower or am I thinking for myself? And of course, it's a false dichotomy. It's just one of the traps that you're going to overcome on this journey. So now let me talk a little bit about the flip side of this experience that Winston went through during his imprisonment. And this also ties in with this bigger point, which is, well, Dosta, if my culture is, let me try and, how do I phrase this? Because of the complexity, like when we say we live in a more complex time now than what the characters are living in this novel, then you can say, well, that must mean that it's harder for us, Dosta. And I say, well, no, not necessarily. Because Winston's struggle was him as an individual and then the Brotherhood as his support rebellion community and then the government agency that controlled the country that he was in. So there you only have three components, Winston, the Brotherhood, and the government. And Winston's idea was, well, I can join the Brotherhood and eventually the Brotherhood will take over the government and then the government will change everything of this society and everything will all be better again. And, of course, in our day and age, that process still exists people still get into the public debate. They say, well, who should I vote for and which politicians do I like and what's my opinion on this policy and what's about this law? And there's a whole socio-sphere conversation about, well, how do we live our society and how should government involve itself with the corporations and the individuals and so on? But there's another way. There's another option that we have, which Winston didn't have, and that is to create your own community. And furthermore, you can join an established community. You can join an isolated society. And there are many of them. And there are many positive ones. There are many communities that are doing incredibly powerful things. 
And this is the flip side. You can create your own light. Not just as an individual, but as a collective. There are opportunities to live in a collective. Of course, it is very rare. And of course, it is a journey to find one that suits you. And at this stage in our conversation, I don't, I don't want to mention too much about the specifics of my own findings. And I have talked about them in the past, and I will talk about them in the future. And you could be sitting there saying, well, Dosta, give us some examples of these communities. Where do I sign up? Give me the address. I'm going to go there. And we'll get to that. We will do, we'll talk about these things one day. But here, let's just keep it general. Let's just keep it broad. And you have to believe that these communities do exist. And in fact, it's my dream to one day create these sorts of things for myself and for others. It's a very ambitious dream. It's a very far-off goal. And these communities still have to interact with the government. They still have to interact with the broader society. They still have to interact with the press. And there's always going to be some drama between those relationships. Collectives interacting with collectives. Well, that's a very complicated game right there. And really, a deeper point which I want to make is that these positive communities, these isolated communities, which are the flip side of the dictatorship that Winston is oppressed in in this novel, they actually do the opposite of what happened to Winston when he was in his imprisonment. They have the opposite effect. And they do it in almost exactly the same way. They do it with almost exactly the same techniques. Because you notice that everything throughout this dystopian novel is upside down, wrong way around, called the wrong thing, back to front, and completely wrong. So much to the case that you don't know what's wrong and what's right anymore. And I'm here to tell you that there are experiential processes which can build you up. And they have exactly the same parameters as these experiential processes that Winston went through, such as, for one, taking away your sense of time, taking away your sense of location. Restricting you to a certain place. Restricting your communication. A relationship with a teacher who does intense psychological interrogations on you. Intense psychological processes with you. Experiential processes which are emotional they work with your sense of reality, your sense of sanity. 
experiential processes that have intense feelings behind them, such as pain. Experiential processes that work with your deepest fears. Experiential processes that are tailored just for you and specific to you. And it's all good and well for us to sit here and say, well, don't participate in your society. But really, the flip side of that is, well, what if we do participate and we optimize it? Now, Winston, when he was in jail, he was reduced as a man. His spirit was broken. He was torn down. He was abused. He was tortured. And we can do the opposite of that. We can set things up for just a week or two, or even just a day, or even just a moment. We set things up, and we treat you like a king. We respect you. We point out all the good things about you. We find all the opportunities you have had to do the right thing, and you have done the right thing. We find the inner beauty that you have, the soul that you have, the intuitions that you have, and instead of crushing them, we fertilize them. We allow them to grow. I don't know if fertilize is the right word. <laughs> What's the? That could be taken the wrong way, <laughs> especially if you're a woman. <laughs> Maybe we can think of a different word. Let's say, let's say cultivate them. That might be a better word. We cultivate your inner light. We encourage your inner light. That's a better way to put it. And we can do this intensely. We can do this as a condensed experience for a short amount of time, which gets deep into your being, deep into the way you talk, the way you think, the way you feel. And it's so intense and it's so deep that this one-off experience, which has been constructed and contrived and orchestrated carries over into the rest of your life. It gives you something that you carry with you for more years to come. It becomes structural. A temporary process becomes structural. And you remember when Julia and Winston were meeting for the last time and she says, when you say it, you really mean it. When you're in that intense moment and you say, no, don't hurt me, hurt someone else, sacrifice someone else, then you really do mean it. And you can say that, well, you've been forced into it or it was the torture making you do it or the pain that it was doing it. But no, the thing that broke Julia and Winston, it sounds like, was the fact that they had said something from themselves and it had come from deep within them and they actually had meant it. And now think, the flip side of that, the opposite of that, this can be contrived. This can be, well, well I don't know if contrived is the right word. I, I feel constructed. It can be set up in such a ways that you have the same experience but it's positive rather than negative. And I've been lucky enough to go through this. I've been lucky enough to have these processes happen. And I know many of these processes. 
And these are processes which are constructed and set up in such a way as that you have an intense experience and at the absolute peak, the climax of the story, there's a moment where something comes out of your mouth and these words come out and you're shocked. You're shocked that you're saying them and you're shocked that they're coming from so deep within your being and you realize that they're true. You realize that there is something undeniable about these words. And that can be such a positive experience. That can be such a powerful experience. So positive and so powerful that it carries over structurally. And these become one of the treasures, the jewels of your inner world. So just like Julia and Winston went through this elaborate process to have their inner world impoverished and destroyed, there are also processes which you and I can go through to enrich and strengthen our inner world. So that covers just about all, I think, the key insights that I had from this book. And I'd like to add just a quick appendix or afterthought, which is a description of what it's like to go through these things. And basically, what it's like for me is I do my study of the work of the book and I go through it and I think it through and certain things come up and there are certain things that we can associate it to and they're unique to me and that is my process of allowing triggers to occur and accepting them and that's something you can adopt for yourself which is you read your way through a book and certain things will jump out at you And you'll say, oh, that's just like this. Oh, that makes me think of this. And sometimes it's something very small, which makes you think of a lot. And the trick is to embrace this. The trick is to learn how this threads into the story. Learn how to amalgamate what you already know with what this new story, this new information is going in. And for me, as I talk through it and we discuss it together, there's always multiple options and there's tangents and there's rabbit holes and there's different examples that I go through. There's still things that I forget. There's still things that we don't bring up. And as we pass through them, well, we miss them. And of course, there are certain bits in the passage in the story that we skip over. And so... Listening to this series is not a substitute for reading the book because there are many things in the book that we didn't discuss. There are many tangents. There are many side plots. There are many threads. And even that applies to some of the biggest points. I mean, this is such a versatile work that there's so many different conclusions that can come from it. So read the book and see what it triggers for you and see how different it was for you. 
This really is an important piece of literature. And that's just how we talk through these things. It's different every time, and sometimes I, sometimes I do kick myself after we have these conversations and say, oh, we should have said that, or I should have added this, but that's just the case that that's how it is. And, and I realize also that I can only have these conversations once. Now that we've talked this through, it's a process for me as well. I'm still thinking through the processes. And the uniqueness of my experiences and the flip side, especially for this last section, is is a, well, what is it? It's a, it's an accepting that my interpretation is unique to me. And that means that sometimes we make very far-reaching associations which might make you scratch your head and say, well, why are you associating these things? But in the name of free thinking and adventurous thinking, we just say, well, that's just what I'm thinking about. And that's just what this book triggers for me. So that's what I'd like to say in regards to how this process has been for me. And now, we'll finish this series with a few moments of silence. So if it's comfortable for you to do so, stop what you're doing and sit down somewhere quietly. And just take a few minutes to sit in silence. And really sit still. Don't scratch yourself. Don't twitch. Don't move your arms or your legs. Just sit very, very still. And relax in that stillness. You don't need to clench your muscles. You don't need to Stress yourself. Just be very peaceful in a very calm stillness. And just stay in this silence for a few moments. And that's all I have to say for now.